Lord Jesus, yeah, we thank you so much for for being here. Spirit of God, that you would that you are in this place. Lord, that you've been working across generations as we've been singing, generation to generations. So many generations have passed since you walked this earth, Jesus. And you've been your by your spirit been working and here we are today. Approaching approaching you, the Lord of the universe. And um Lord, I pray uh, that your spirit would you just continue moving here, Lord. You'd uh, continue touching our hearts. That that the words that I say would um, would they would honour you, and uh, and they'd be almost like just I don't know, almost like vehicles to to release what you're doing in our lives, Lord, and in the life of this lives life of this church, God. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Your kingdom come. Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. Amen. Amen. So good to see you all, as I said before. Um, uh, just, you know, um, sometimes you, you come to come to speak and, you know, sometimes you think, oh, who am I, who am I to speak? And, and that's sort of how I feel today. And it's, and it's not like a feeling of oh, who am I to speak that, that I can't, speak English or I can't use a microphone or anything like that but it's just like like I've just been I just get so struck with um you know the word of God the Bible and I go who am I to actually speak about the mysteries of God that are in this in this in this book and um and I'm really struck by uh something that um that Paul said in um first Corinthians he goes and I when I came to you brothers when I came to you, did not uh, come proclaiming to you. The, oh, sorry. And I, when I when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And that's honestly how I feel today. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this is really my prayer, and I'm sure the prayer of all of us, that we would like be persuaded by the, by the power of God, by his nearness to us, by what he's doing, and, and what we witness him doing, the spirit of God, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So let it be, Lord. Let it be, Lord. As we as we draw close to you, Lord, may we may we witness your power. May you convince our hearts. May you build up our faith, Lord. Let it come. Increase what you're doing, Lord Jesus. We thank you and we honor you. I left my notes somewhere. <laughs> oh, there they are. <laughs> Things are a bit all over the place. So I've got a mixture of uh, my iPad, my Bible, and um, and my little notebook. Awesome. Thanks, Susan. We're good to go with the PowerPoint. So if you were here a few weeks ago, I um, introduced a, I want to call it a journey rather than a series, because a series sounds like it's organized, and and uh, it's it's not really that organized. But it's, but it's a journey with the, with the Israelites as they... Um, as they were set free from slavery in Egypt and then journeyed into the desert in order to encounter God and worship him in the desert. And, uh, and this is a journey towards the promised land. 
So I sort of introduced it last week, and I'm going to be continuing, continuing that uh, this morning with a few more introductions, um, but ultimately with this theme of drawing, drawing near to God. So I want to begin with um, thinking a little bit about time. 430 years, to be precise. 430 years. It's a long, long time, isn't it? 430. I was um, thinking about what was happening 430 years ago. And a lot of cool things were happening 430 years ago. So we're looking back to the 17th century. And, uh, and if you look up uh, Wikipedia, you can find out things that happened in the 17th century. Ice cream was invented in the 17th century. This is a turning point in history. Ice cream. Tea and coffee, even more important. Tea, oh, sorry, tea and coffee becoming popular in Europe, I should say. Um, uh, 1611, something cool happened in 1611. Anybody know what that is? 1611, the King James uh, Bible was published. 1611. Um, I, had, uh, I had this written out on a piece of paper at home and I'd highlighted it, but I left that piece of paper at home. So I kind of like scanning through. But it was, it was a turning point in history because it was, uh, uh, they talk, talk about the scientific revolution. And one of my favorites um, of this is a fellow called um, Anthony van Leeuwenhoek. A Dutch man, he discovered bacteria. So in this century, they were um, coming up with inventions, microscopes, telescopes, things like that. So people were looking at, at outer space. Some people were looking at inner space. He uh, looked at bacteria. Uh, telescopes, they, um, in the 17th century, uh, were looking at Mars and mapped out the surface of Mars which is really quite cool for thinking about what's happening now where we have like robots landing on Mars at the, mo- at the moment, right? Isn't that cool? Um, calculus was invented. So some stink things happened at the same time. <laughs> Not all great stuff. Um, and I think like I read uh, Pascal, he came up with um, a mechanical calculator. Yes. <laughs> To do calculus on. <laughs> other, th- other interesting things happening. The uh, Europeans are making their way over to America, for better or for worse. So I was t- we were talking about this just before the service, but the beginning of, beginning of, the, um, of the slave trade and um, you know, all the horrendous things there. So a-, a massive turning point. So anyway, that's 400 years ago. And then, okay, so thinking personally um, and wave your hand. Who knows, who knows who their ancestors were in the 17th century? Does anybody know who their ancestors were? You do. That's fantastic. Where were they living? Well, on my father's side, yeah. there was basically Far out. That's so awesome, isn't it? That's so cool. And was there another? Yeah. What, were, what was your ancestors doing? Do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> and oh, where about, were they? Uh, Dutch. Wow. Oh, it's quite cool, eh? Far out. Fascinating, eh? I mean, for many, that's re- such a blessing that you know, you know what your what the generations, what your your ancestors were doing 400 years ago. Because for, for many of us, it's like it's just this this big grey. Like, who knows? We we sometimes we think back. I know what my I I, I kind of know what my parents were. Who my parents are, uh, <laughs> but I know what my grandparents are doing. I know what my great what my great grandparents are doing, and then it starts getting getting hazy. And so we like, and I think this is quite. I think it's quite typical that we we sort of know our history back a few generations, and um, 
and then uh, like it's really interesting. So we, we might know something of our ancestors, uh, or we might not. Um, but we don't re- we again we might know the things that they do um, did, and we might know a little bit about what they believed, but we but we might not. What were they? What were they doing? Were they maybe they were shepherds, or um, maybe they're doing a you know nobleman? What did they believe? And um, I mean that's that's only that's four hundred years ago. And so what was what was happening four hundred years ago has also shaped our world today. And so this morning I'm going to go back even further. I'm going to go back three thousand five hundred years ago. This is like you know when you look at the Bible, it's you know it's quite because it's so accessible to us. We sometimes forget actually we're picking up an ancient book every time we pick it up. That ancient book, it's two thousand you know two thousand years, and it, and it tracks back so far. And so the, this morning I want to introduce um, some of the main characters in the Exodus story. Thinking about the main characters, I think uh, uh, Israel, the people of Israel, Moses, a man that, uh, that God raised up, and God Himself. They are the main characters we're going to look at. So Israel, at the time of the Exodus, they'd been in Egypt 430 years. This is why I was thinking about what was happening 430 years ago. Um, they had been uh, welcomed in, if you know the story. They'd been welcomed in, invited into Egypt um, 430 years earlier uh, through the um, amazing work of Joseph, uh, who, who really saved Egypt through, his, uh, through this wisdom and um, managing to um, store a whole lot of food and things they needed to get through years, of, years and years of famine. So they invited into Egypt. Uh, there was Joseph, his family, and, and, and 70, 70 others. But then over the course of hundreds of years, uh, the, the Hebrews began to be systematically enslaved. And so I just want to read... Because um, it'd be rude to talk about e- uh, Exodus and actually not read um, some of Exodus. Uh, uh. Can you go to the next slide, Dave? Wicked. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So Jacob uh, renamed Israel. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household: Reuben, Simeon, uh, Levi. Uh, blessings on baby Levi in Judah. Uh, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that land was filled with them. And I'm just going to pause there. Um, this line uh, really stands out. Stands out to us as we look in Exodus, and if you read, if you read Genesis, and then you read Exodus, this line about uh, being fruitful and multiplication, like it might sort of like remind you of something. So it was like the first directive given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that it would be fruitful and multiply. Um, so you know what that means? That means have lots of babies, and and to and to and to spread out, and uh, and then also after the uh, the Great Flood. Uh, and all that was left was you know, Noah and his family and all the animals on the ark. And then there was the directive again from God, be fruitful, multiply. And so now we have, uh, now we have this happening that is the, the descendants of Jacob, they're being fruitful and they multiply and the land was filled with them. Being fruitful and multiplying then I think is a, is a real sign of God's, God's hand on these people. Like his spirit like blessing them, going, you're doing, you're doing the things that are about me. You're being fruitful, multiplying. So tempted to make a comment about getting married at the moment, but I'm not going to. I'm going to hold myself back. (laughs) Now, now, there arose... (laughs) I guess I just did, didn't I? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) 
Yeah, subtle. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too, too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, that they join their enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. One of my favorite programs on TV is Taskmaster. This is a different kind of Taskmaster. <laughs> Yeah, less funny. Uh, therefore, they set taskmasters. I mean, there's other ways. Anyway, sorry, again, I've got to be careful of the tangents this morning. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, uh, Pitam or Pitham. Um, I'm not Egyptian, so I don't know how you say it, and, uh, and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, they, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So they're getting, you know, the, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, they're getting oppressed, but they're still multiplying. God's hand is still upon them, and the more they spread. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. I love that line. They were in dread because they could see, I think they could see, there's something about these people that uh, actually we can't control. Good. They were in dread of the people. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So like, it starts off great, eh? It starts off great, like um, this time of blessing for these people, uh, for, for the descendants of Jacob. And then uh, over generations, it, go, it goes bad. It goes really bad. And it, it gets even worse. I mean, many of you um, uh, will know the story. Um, how then the then the Pharaoh he he is uh, so frightened of the of the I'm going to just call them Israelites. He's so frightened of Israelites that he um, that he orders the uh, the murder of of the infant sons, infant infanticide, genocide. It's race based. Just just horre- just horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Yeah, but you wonder what, what was kind of going on over the, over the course of these generations, hundreds of years, right? We're talking about that, 400 years. What was kind of going on? Um, were, was there heaps of like mingling of cultures? I mean, the, the group of people that came into Egypt at the start were 70-odd people, 75 people. Uh, according to the New Testament, 75 people, and they were in this big nation. Uh, was there lots of mingling of cultures? Was there mingling of, of language? Uh, was there mingling of religion? The Egyptians had hundreds of gods, many gods. Well, what was what was going on then? Well, with the, I mean, uh, um, with the Israelites, these are, uh, this is just conjecture. Right? These just some some of the things to think about. Were the, were the Israelites like completely uh, sort of separate, sort of like like in their own ghetto, or did they um, interact a lot with the Egyptians? I, I reckon that they interacted quite a lot. I reckon there was quite a lot of um, of mingling and um, and getting to know each other. <clears throat> immersing themselves in, in that culture. And then over the generations, things change, right? And so they become, um, uh, become enslaved. Become enslaved. And, yet, and yet, there, yet there's this promise. And so one of the things I reckon to think about as we, as we look through Exodus is kind of going, what, what, did, they, what did they know uh, in this point? What did they know of God? What did they know of the, of the promises of God? We we have we have the written word of God. We've got the, all these scriptures that we can look at, and we can and we can um, read these things. But what do they have? Maybe maybe they had like a, a strong oral tradition, handing stories down. I don't know. I don't know. But if we look back at Genesis uh, fifteen, there was this promise. It's working now, Dave. On it. So this is the promise that was made to um, Jacob's great 
great-grandfather? <laughs> Have I got that right? Abraham, also known as Abraham. And uh, again, like, I'm just not great with getting my bookmarks organized. So don't read yet. But back, uh, so God met with Abraham and made this promise to Ab- Abraham. In uh, Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, a, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Doesn't sound pleasant. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. This is a, the, the promise that was... And so some of them might have, might have held on to this. Some of, this, some of them might have remembered. 400 years. Hmm. 400 years ago, you said this, God, to Father Abraham, who had many sons. <laughs> many sons. <laughs> So that, that's, the, that's the first pe- people I want to introduce, Israel. The next person we're going to move on to is, um, is Moses. Moses uh, has this incredible birth, uh, birth narrative. So uh, as I said before, Pharaoh, uh, his solution to the problem is, they saw Israel as a problem. His solution to the problem of Israel was try to um, basically um, uh, kill a generation of boys. So he made this order um, to the midwives. He commanded the midwives, okay, every time a male, uh, male son is born, then um, you throw him into the river. And, uh, and then you have these um, disobedient midwives who did not do that. <laughs> uh, and, then, and so in, into this, Moses is born. And his, um, his mum is... As any mother would do, sort of like tried to uh, like keep him secret, uh, tried to look after him, and then but then sort of gets to this point where he's actually too uh, noisy because <laughs> babies are noisy, I know, but too noisy to hide away, and and so she built um, the word is actually ark, uh, a basket, and placed the basket, placed Moses in the basket into the river um, to see what happens. Moses's uh, sister, uh, we find out later on that her name's Miriam. She she watches 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 what's going on, and she sees that um, Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh is the enemy. He wants he wants to kill them all. Anyway, Pharaoh's daughter comes down. She's bathing, I guess, in the river, and she sees this baby. And something in her heart goes, "I I want to rescue this baby." I don't know what was going on in her heart. Right? She's the daughter of the enemy. So she, I love it, uh, she, she rescues this baby, uh, Moses' sister Miriam, then goes to her, well, I know somebody who could look after this baby for you if you just need one. And so then they go, okay, and Pharaoh's daughter goes, yep, that's a great idea. And then so employs Moses' mother um, to look after her own baby. I love this. This is like this, the way of God, like going, um, you're going to be paid to look after your own baby. Love it. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> and so we have this like really incredible story. So he's saved. He's saved by the enemy's daughter. He's saved by the enemy's daughter. Uh, he's named by the enemy's daughter. 
He's named Moses by the enemy's daughter. Right? He's, he's then educated and trained in the enemy's house. <laughs> it's like God is doing something here, really doing something here, really surprising. And so um, rather than read the story from Exodus, I'm going to read it from uh, Acts chapter 7. Uh, because sometimes I think like we can like using the New Testament to look back at the Exodus is going to be in, insightful for us. Also, in this, uh, I'm reading from uh, a speech that Stephen gave, um, where Stephen has been uh, brought to trial essentially, um, and one of the charges laid against him was that he's been blaspheming against Moses. And then if, if you know the story of Stephen, he, uh, he, he kind of tells the story of, of uh, Israelites. He tells them, your hearts are always hard. You're never, you're never receiving the prophets of God. You're always hard-hearted. Um, his face begins to glow uh, like Moses glowed. He, and he, then he has this open vision of heaven, and he sees Jesus uh, at, this, at the side of God. And this enrages, I, I talked about this a wee while ago, this enrages the Pharisees so much that they stone him to death. So this is the beginning of a speech that results in him being killed. So I'm going, okay, let's listen, let's listen to this. This is how Stephen, his legend, legend uh, puts it. He goes, but, but, I'm going to turn it, read it from here. Acts 7, verse 20. Sorry, Acts 7, I'm going to start at uh, verse 17. But as the time of promise drew near, it's a promise because 400 years earlier uh, the promise was made. So as the time of promise, promise drew, drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when, and when he was exposed, so this is when um, his mother placed him in the, in the basket in the river, the ark in the river, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. This is a really, really, really cool way, like the way that God's working things together here. <clears throat> three months in his father's, only three months in his father's house, and then raised by Pharaoh's daughter in uh, Pharaoh's daughter's house uh, as her own son. Instructed in all the all the wisdom of in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. <laughs> We discover later on that he's, he's actually spent 40 years living, living with the Egyptians. And, I, and this is something that I think is really, really key for us too, is that just thinking about um, Moses being educated by the, by the Egyptians, by the enemy, and how the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are all attributed to Moses. If he didn't write them, then at least he, put, he must have put them together. So a tribute to Moses, I, I reckon that he, that he wrote them. And so we have these first five books of our Bible, almost like these foundational books of our Bible, that were written by a man who learned how to write 
from the enemy. The, the enemy. And this happens again, like time and time and time and time again. Uh, heaps of our New Testament uh, are letters that were written, uh, like Paul, when he's, when he's been locked up by the enemy. We wouldn't have these letters if, if he hadn't been locked up. So we wouldn't have had, we won't have these first, I think, we wouldn't have these first five books of the Bible unless Pharaoh had decided, let's kill all the newborn babies. Crazy, eh? But God works things together for good. God works things together for good. As, a, as, uh, as Joseph said in uh, Genesis fifteen nineteen to 20, you meant it for evil, but God means it for good. And it, so 40 years, Moses has been living as the prince of Egypt <laughs> in Pharaoh's daughter's house. I don't know if he spent that whole 40 years living there. But living as an Egyptian. But he still saw himself as a Hebrew, still identified as a Hebrew. Uh, and we know this because uh, one day he goes out and he sees um, some Hebrews being mistreated by one of the um, one of the Egyptians, and he gets so filled with uh, anger that he then murders, he kills the Egyptian. And then uh, the next day, someone says to him, "Oh, um, he, turned, he turns up and they, they confront him. And they said, oh, are you going to murder us the same way as you murdered the Egyptian? He realizes that word's out. Now Pharaoh wants to kill him. <laughs> so his uh, adopted mother's father wants to kill him. And so he runs. And now he runs out into the, um, runs out into the wilderness where he spends another 40 years as, as a shepherd. And, uh, and again, I'm going to read. Stephen's summary of this. When he was 40 years old, what verse are we in? Verse 23. When he was 40 years old, David, don't do any murdering. No, not a good idea. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So you got this guy who uh, was born a Hebrew, you know, raised for three months. Well, my boy's about to turn three months. It's not, it goes pretty quick. Three months. And then the next 40 years, uh, growing up in Pharaoh's daughter's house, you know, the prince of Egypt. Um, and then at age 40, he becomes a murderer. You don't just become a murderer. You murder somebody. He killed somebody in cold blood. And then he, then he runs out into the desert where he spends the next 40 years as a, as a shepherd. And you think of like, you think about this, hey, like this guy, is so much promise. Oh, man, you had so much promise, Moses. Why'd you blow it? 80 years old. There's no hope for you now. You're too old. Okay, and now we meet the third character. God. <laughs> God himself. It's all about God. He's not the character in the story. He is the story. <laughs> I asked the question before, like, what did the Israelites know of God? They might, they might have had, uh, again, like, this, uh, like stories handed down generation after generation, the God of our fathers, the God who did this and that, you know, made covenants with our, with our, with our, our ancestors. 
who knows? I, I reckon that probably the story um, got a bit you know, muddled over time, got a bit distorted. Because they're living in this land of many gods. So when God turns up into the story, when he reveals himself to Moses, the first thing he does is he, he introduces himself. Because <laughs> he's like saying, you know, I, this is just my imagination, but maybe, maybe Moses at this point, and we're going to go into it, but maybe Moses at this point is like, well, um, which God are you? <laughs> are you one of the Egyptian gods? And so God uh, introduces himself. Oh, sorry, I was going to um, just talk about, this is a cool map that I saw, you probably better see it, but, um, okay, cool. So Egypt, um, you know, Moses is probably up around this kind of like northern end of, of, of Egypt, and then when he flees, he doesn't just pop over the border, but he flees all the way over to the land of Midian, which is quite far away. Um, over here, and then uh, and then we find out that he was shepherding probably around, kind of like down here in, in the um, south of this region, but in the middle of the desert. I just like that map. Now, so this is what Stephen says again, reading from 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I've come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So there are quite a few things kind of going on in the, in the sentence, in this, in this passage. One of the things is the first, the first thing that Moses does is he, is he hides his face. And some of you remember a few weeks I was talking, talking about how Adam and Eve, after they, after they sinned, and there's this time where God is walking through the Garden of Eden, and instead of going to hang out with him, they hid themselves behind trees. They hid themselves from his presence. And so this kind of reminds me of that. Like Moses is hiding himself while well, he's in the presence of he's in the presence of a holy God, and when when you're in the presence of the holy God, you want to hide yourself away because otherwise you might get destroyed. But then God speaks to him and moves, and and Moses moves himself to engage with God. And then this encounter completely changes his life. And we've got a photo of that. <laughs> Photographic evidence. Uh, Moses, 80 years old. He's an 80-year-old shepherd in the desert, seeing this bush that is burning, hiding his face, taking off his shoes, encountering God in a way that completely changes his life. So even though we've got Moses, he's a, he's a failure, if you look at it. <laughs> if you look at it, like, you know, Ray, you know, spent 40, 40 years getting trained up to be this nobleman, and, and then he murders somebody, and now he's been a, a shepherd. He's not meant to be a shepherd, is he? He's meant to be a nobleman. And now he's 80, an 80-year-old 80 shepherd, looking after his father-in-law's flocks. And yet, this guy, like God, God encounters him. God calls him uh, and, and encounters him, anoints him. Moses, uh, Moses makes a decision at that time. Like when you encounter God, are you, going to, are you going to stay? Are you going to listen? Are you going to draw near? Or will you, will you run away? Everything in, in you actually might want to run away. 
Moses responded, he took, off his, he, he took off his shoes, he drew near, he listened, he obeyed, and he became in this moment the man that the Lord used to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. Because uh, uh, encounters with God, <sighs> encounters with God, they, cha- they change us in a way that, um, oh, how do you say this? Encounters with God are not for us to simply feel good. <laughs> Sometimes we want to feel good. I want to meet with you, God, so I feel good. I want to, I want to have a burning bush experience to hear your voice. But then it's what, what happens out of this. Like this is such a fundamental change in Moses that uh, in spite of his fears and everything like that, he then goes to, and then he goes back into Egypt. He actually goes to Pharaoh, right? Remember, Pharaoh's the one that wants to kill him. He goes to Pharaoh and has the audacity to go, let my people go. This changes him so much. But in, kind of in this moment, uh, do I have it? Oh, no. Sorry. In this moment, uh, Moses asks God a good question. He says, uh, where is this? Exodus 3 verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? And God said, Well, you're Moses. You're the one that, uh, no, he did not say that. He actually didn't, he didn't, he didn't even answer Moses' question at all because it wasn't about who Moses is, it's about who God is. <laughs> who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel? God said, but I will be with you. But I will be with you. The, the promises of God are fulfilled when we are with him and we are, and we are in him. Uh, first, Second Corinthians 1.20 says this. It talks about all of the promises of Jesus are yes and amen. All, all God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. It's in Jesus that the, the promises are fulfilled. It's only with God that our promises are fulfilled. All right, what do I have on the next slide? <laughs> All right, something else Stephen says. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, whom, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him at the bush. Again, like I think it's just this amazing way that God works. Um, you know, they were, they were, so this was a question asked by the, by the Hebrews. Uh, you know, when Moses, uh, sort of after, the, after he'd killed the Egyptian, they're like, who made you? Who made you ruler and a judge? And then 40 years later, God makes him ruler and judge. And the word that is judge here uh, also means deliverer, ruler and deliverer. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Sounds like Jesus. This is... So kind of <laughs> closing in on the end here. There's three, there's three things that have really stood out to me. The first one is, when, when do encounters with God happen? When do God, encounters with God happen? Because I think all of us, we want to encounter God. When do encounters with God happen? In this case, uh, and, and it's often the case, encounters with God happen in hard times, when we're, when we're, when we're pressed, when we're facing pressure. Uh, Moses, he's in the, he's in the wilderness, for a long, long time. Psalm 23 says, 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Stephen's vision, this encounter, we want to have visions with God. He has this vision, but it's, it's in the presence of, of his enemies in a hard, hard place. As I said before, he was about to get, uh, he was about to get um, stoned by the Pharisees. And, and I, want to, I really want to encourage us, church, today. Because I know many, many of us, many of you, many of us are in hard times, difficult places. And we go, Lord, Lord, where are you in this? Where are you in this? And that's the right thing to do in hard times, in hard times, in in wilderness places, in difficult places. Pay attention. Pay attention. Listen close. And it's it's, it's a natural response to... uh, um, is to escape and, and distract ourselves. And I think that could be a mistake because sometimes when we escape and we, and we distract ourselves, then we miss out on, on actually what God is saying or doing. Like, um, you know, if, if, if Moses had a smartphone and he was kind of going through the wilderness on his phone, checking Facebook, then he might not have noticed the burning bush there. You know what I mean? Uh, and so... I mean, it's good. I love watching Taskmaster, as I think I said before. But, but, but we've got to find ways of, um, especially in those times, when we're desperate for an encounter to God, with God, then find ways. Like spend time, sacrifice time um, to be with God, praying, worshipping, reading, reading the scriptures, crying out to him and waiting on him. So be encouraged. If, you, if you're in a, in a hard time at the moment, if you're like facing pressure, uh, you're facing fears, anxieties, like life is just, just, just a bit stink at the moment, then like look out, pay attention. What is, God, what is God doing? God has allowed this. What is he doing? Where is he? Where do encounters with God happen? They often happen in hard times. The second thing um, is all of this... All of this, uh, as we're going to journey through Exodus, we'll discover that all of it revolves on the presence of God. Uh, Moses' encounter, Moses, the transformation that happened in Moses' life was, it was in this moment of encounter with God. It completely changed him, completely changed him. And so in this, uh, as Stephen put it, he, he drew near to the, to the burning bush. He took off his sandals and he drew near to the burning bush. So what keeps us from the presence of God? What keeps us from the presence? What, what makes us uh, hide away? God says to Moses, take off your shoes. And just this line has just been like stuck in my head like all week. Take off your shoes. Why did Moses have to take off his shoes? And I think it has to do with this, this area, this uh, bit of land that he was on, this bit of dirt. Let's go back and have a look at it in the photo. This, this bit of land, like this is God's space. This is like God's land, and and uh, almost like God saying, "This is this is my this is mine," <laughs> and um, and Moses like taking off his shoes, like, like I can imagine it being stony rather than a sandy desert, so a bit uncomfortable. He's taking off his sandals, like he's submitting himself to God. He, he's being obedient to God. He's honoring God. Take off your shoes. Uh, we need to learn. Uh, we need to learn to, to submit ourselves to him. We need to learn to be obedient to him, to honor him. What gets in the way of coming into his presence? Sin gets in the way. <laughs> sin gets in the way. Adam and Eve hid themselves from God's presence because of their sin. Sin gets in the way. 
What do we, what do we hold on to? We hold on to things, and that gets, that gets in the way of us coming into his presence. He's always inviting us, but we hold on to things. Um, some things are coming to mind. Unforgiveness, uh, bitterness, uh, other sins. You know, you could, you could, I don't know, let God show, them what, God show you what, what they are, the things that are holding you back from his presence. Um, possessions, our worldly possessions. <laughs> uh, the things that we find security in. Our, our money. These, uh, these can become idols. Anything that sort of like takes the place of God in our life. It takes too much of our attention. Our families can become too big a thing. Drawing close to God, drawing into his presence, it always involves giving up something of ourselves. It always involves letting go. His presence reveals our hearts. It reveals what, it reveals what we worship and where we fall short. <laughs> it does. It does. I, I, have, I have it all the time. God, I, I, want, I want to draw near to God's presence and then God revealing to me something. Going, you, you've let this become too big a thing in your life. Uh, you've, you're, you're dabbling over here like, um, with, with sinful things and you need to stop that. Um, whatever it is. And, it, and, it's, and it's, an invitation, it's an invitation into his presence. And his, and his presence is life. And his presence is fulfill, our, our fulfillment, our purpose, our joy. His glory. We get to be in his glory. Romans 3, uh, 23. Did I have a slide on this one? Let's find out. Yeah, Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's like we want to approach that burning bush and then we stumble over our own stuff and we fall short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Right, we, took communion, we took communion before. We're justified through Jesus. Um, some of you, I think everybody uses a computer. Uh, one way to think about justification is justified text. It looks horrible. But, um, but you know how when you justify text, it, it kind of draws it all out to the edges, so you have like this block. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Is that making sense? It's, it's God who does that. It's like, like he justifies us. He, he, fills, he fills the gap. Jesus does it. I want to say, but Jesus, right? We all fall short, but Jesus. Psalm 50 says, I don't know where I write that down. So the second, so the first thing is, encounters happen often in hard places. The second thing is, in order to approach the presence of God, usually we, we've got, well, always, we've got to let something go. Because his, his, his presence reveals stuff about us. None of us have got it all together. But the third thing is just draw near, draw near, draw near. For those, of, for those of you who feel close to God today, for those of you who feel far from God today, the invitation is always there to draw near, to draw near to his presence. Draw near to his presence. Psalm 51 was what I was talking about before. <laughs> Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. We draw near to you, God. Like you got to ask yourself, are you... Have you had enough of God, basically? Have you had enough of his presence? If you think you have, then you don't know. <laughs> Draw near. I'm just going to finish with this from James. James 4. I'm going to read it from there. You adulterous people, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Thank you, God, that you do. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So James, there giving his advice, his teaching on how to draw near. It's pretty hard-hitting, James. As we, uh, as, as, we draw, as we kind of journey with the Israelites over the next, next season of, uh, how, of becoming a people of God's presence, we've kind of got to be willing to kind of let God sort of highlight, highlight to us what are, the things, what are the things that are holding us back. Because we want to be people of his presence. I'm, I want to be a person of God's presence. Uh, it's, it's all that matters. It's... <laughs> In this life, I reckon. And I'm just going to finish there. Lord, you say, you say, draw near to you. And if we draw near to you, then you will draw near to us. Lord, our, our heart's desire is to draw near to you. To come close, to come close to you, as we're singing about before, to be in your dwelling place. To encamp around your presence. To be held within your presence. To know, the, to know the security, to know the safety, to know the fulfillment, the purpose, the meaning. Everything comes from the presence, comes from being near to you. To um, come so close that we might like, rest our head upon your chest and hear your heart beating with love so loud that it drowns out our fears and anxieties. Lord, that we would be a people that would be like willing to humbly uh, approach you, being willing to uh, even let go of the things that you show us are, are actually just getting in the way. Lord, you set the people of Israel free. You set them free from slavery, from slavery, uh, a physical slavery, and then you had to set them free almost like from a spiritual slavery within themselves. And Lord, I feel like it's like that for us, Lord. You set us free. We, we're saved by you, Jesus. And then we spend, um, then we journey towards your presence, and you continue setting us free from the uh, from where we've um, mingled with our world, essentially. So set us free, God. Set us free, God. Lord, would you would you show? Would you reveal to each person that uh, that is willing to enter into this? Would you show us um, what you'd have us do? You take off your shoes, you said to Moses. What do you want us to take off? What do you want us to let go of, Lord? What are the things you're addressing in our hearts even now, God, that we would draw near to you and be a people of your presence, that we would, would, that we would dwell in your light, that we would be a people of light? Lord, we want to be salt and light in our city that comes from being in your presence. So come, Holy Spirit, even now, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Uh, just earlier during the worship, I was thinking about uh, the wind. Like Wellington is a windy city. We have the northerly wind. We have the southerly. And my favorite, my favorite wind is the southerly, because it's like it's a it's a it's a wind of substance. It's a wind of like 
of, of, of uh, significance. It changes things. And then just this, just this kind of sense of like, um, it's also cold, it's also uncomfortable. Just a sense of like, Lord, would your wind blow across us, Lord? A wind of significance. Lord, even if, it's, even if it is uncomfortable, Lord, we want to we be propelled by, by your wind, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit.